Welcome to Managing Marketing. Today I'm in Melbourne at the uh, salubrious offices of OMD and having a chat with Doug Pearce, who is the recently appointed uh, chairman of Omnicom Media Group for Greater China and someone I've known for a long time. Welcome, Doug. Hey, Darren. How are you? Good, thanks. Good to be um, back in Melbourne. Well, yes, uh, the, the traffic here drives me crazy. It feels like it takes forever. Yeah. And yet there's not lots of it. It's just awfully slow. Yeah. But, um, well, traffic, you've come from, you're based in Shanghai. Based in Shanghai. How long um, have you been in Shanghai now? Been living there uh, 15 years over two stints. Okay. So... Long way to come as a, uh, a, a, you know, you are a Melbourne boy because we met in when I did copy school back in 1985, right. you were uh, one of the uh, media leads at uh, DDB, wasn't Correct. it? Correct. In the days when media and creative agencies yeah. actually were the same thing. Which was actually the, the most exciting time, actually probably of my career in some ways, because you dealt a lot with these weird and wonderful creative people and now you were fully involved in the whole, whole process of creative uh, development. So is that what made you jump then to Leo Burnett's? Because you were very much the media guy and then you went across to Leo Burnett's at the time that media and creative were splitting. Um, no, actually I've always uh, wanted to run things. So I was um, working... A control with... freak. No, 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 I just wanted to be the boss, right, I guess. Yeah. And um, I went from DDB that had about uh, 30, 40 people in those days, was number one to uh, Leo Burnett that uh, had four people and was number 13. In those days, that was pre-obviously the, yeah. the, all the emergers and amalgamations, so went from the biggest to the smallest, but enabled me to become the media director. Right. At Leo Burnett. At Leo Burnett in Melbourne. And was that what then opened up the door for China, or what was um, the attraction of China? Well, China sort of came a little bit after. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was at Burnett for about... Uh, a year and then the national media director job came up in Sydney mm-hmm. um, which gave me responsibility of the Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Brisbane, Adelaide offices and also New Zealand. So I moved to Sydney for about a year and a half and then um, Burnett uh, acquired Conaghan and May and um, they had an existing media director at the time so there was no, uh, no real room for me. So. I went back to Melbourne to become uh, general manager of Leo Burnett Melbourne. And then again, put me into the, the account service space, which gave me a bit more insight into how agencies were working in client relationships. And I did that for about eight or nine years and was wondering where the next step was. And uh, a guy called Steve Gatfield, who was the regional head of um, Burnett at the time, said, would you be interested in China? This is in 2000. I said, sure. And that's, uh, in many ways, quite early to step into China. I mean, China's become the sort of the hot market for a lot of people in advertising and media. Yeah. But in those days, it would have still been a bit of the sort of wild eastern frontier. It was. And we had um, 35 people uh, at Leo Burnett. Uh, I was the only expatriate, the only foreigner. And, um, but we had the Coke business. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, China opening up, 
chance for me to run an office and Coca-Cola. How uh, how good is that? You know, this has got to be something. So I basically said to Steve, if I can live there, let me have a look at it. If I can live there, then, then I'm in. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, there was a, a global decision made by Coke uh, to consolidate the business back in IPG. And we lost the business. Every market lost brand Coke, and that was the end of my stint. I ended up coming back to uh, to run Starcom here, same family. Yeah. Um, in two thousand and three, and I was really only here for about six months before Jack Clues, who was the head of global head of Starcom, said, "You know what, Doug? We need you back in China, much more than we need you in uh, in Melbourne." So uh, after about a year and a half of kind of saying no, I said, okay. Um, so that put me back into the China track. And um, China, what, what was your first impressions, you know, from those early days in China? What, what was it that struck you about the market? Just the size of it. The size, the complexity, uh, how everything was growing. Uh, back, in, back in, you know, the early, mid to 2000s, it was a bit, bit tougher. Um, but it's really just been the sheer size of things and the scale and um, more lately just how important China is for most clients and marketers and for many of them it's their number one or number two market in the world mm. so they get a lot of attention and um, you know China became very important in winning global business for, for long Nicole. Yeah of course and uh, there's a, uh, a infographic an animated infographic which shows from the 60s through to now countries by GDP. Yeah. It actually changes over time. And you see in that period you're talking about, 2000 to now, yeah. the way China has absolutely rocketed up the top 10 to be number two yeah. and is significantly challenging the US. Yeah, correct. So I imagine it's not just scale and, and complexity, but also it must be change. I mean, you've been in China at a time of unprecedented change. Yeah, and growth. Mm. And uh, I, I would say... 2011, 12, 13, um, 15, probably to 15 was, was you just really had to open the door and people would come in or clients would come in and you had an opportunity to grow. But it's very tough now. And that's really driven by just the dominance of the, the big internet digital players in, in China who are probably more dominant there than they are uh, outside of China in terms of their scope and breadth. Um, Alibaba, for instance, has a, a, a platform like YouTube or Youku, mm -hmm. which they broadcast the talent, they make the, make the content, right? they broadcast the content, make the content, broadcast the content, they have e-commerce, so they sell. So it's got a bit of, bit of um, Youku and or Google and um, Amazon, and they sell the product, they have a payment system, they own the delivery company that delivers things. So it's really end-to-end. -end. They are very good at doing verticals, aren't they? They yeah. go right through the vertical. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people criticise China as being a, a nation that copies. But I think what we've seen, at least in the last decade or more, is that China, China is innovating, especially in this technology space. Without a doubt. I mean, look, that was kind of the history of... of um, of China will see what's going on around the world and try and replicate it there. But now the innovation is really, really quite outstanding. And I'm noticing it because in China, I pay probably 80% of my daily activities on the phone yeah. through WeChat Pay or Alipay. And here I've got to 
get the credit card out and you know swipe it, which or, or just um, tap and go, which is not bad. But the you know the operating system, particularly in WeChat, is is really out there. Yeah, I know. I've got a WeChat account, and yeah. um, when you're in China. It's unbelievable. Even food vendors yeah, on the side street. of the road will have their QR code yeah. and you just scan it, yeah. you know, the number of times and that you're yeah, buying something and right. it's transacted instantly. Yeah. It's almost like, um, you know, Australia and, and Western countries have been held back by the traditional, you know, um, financial institutions because this whole, as you say, uh, system has been built basically on two platforms. You know, it's yeah. Alipay, WeChat Pay. Yeah. I mean, there's others. A- Apple Pay's there, but pretty yeah. small. But, yeah. you know, it's those two that have completely invented a whole infrastructure mm. Mm. that taps into banks but doesn't rely on them. Yeah. So they, they built actually an operating system. So think of WeChat as an iOS. Mm. And uh, you can book a taxi, you can book movies, you can trans- I could transfer. Mm. I know you've got a WeChat account. We could, I could transfer money to you. Uh, you know, you can just do all these amazing things, shop online. It's really, really quite incredible what you can do. And, um, yeah, it's more like an operating system. So people are turning to that every day of their lives. And you've got 900 million users. I wonder how many... Uh Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs look at that and go, oh my God, I wish I had have put a payment platform into my social media. Imagine if Zuckerberg had made Facebook built on a payment platform. Yeah. How much more powerful that would be. Exactly. And I think um, I saw an, uh, an article about uh, Eric Schmidt, who was the chairman of uh, Google, saying the one thing that they missed was a, a social media platform because if people are on it all the time doing their messaging, then it's naturally going to use that as their main payment method. Of course, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think that having like WeChat with the social social messaging and the whole operating system is it's really powerful. People would use it. I'm going to say every 20 minutes, they would be on that operating system doing something or watching content that they're producing. Yeah, I'd, uh, well, just because um, my wife uses it all the time, and uh, I'd say she's on it 24-7. I, I, I think you know, you'd almost have to uh, cleave the phone from her hand yeah. to actually get her off WeChat. Correct, correct. Yeah, and yeah. so this is incredibly powerful. How many, did you say, were um, using the platform? It's about 900 million, I think, the So almost a billion people. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievably powerful. Yeah, and it's now embracing other markets around the around the world too. So, um. well, uh, two years ago, I was in Johannesburg, and in the local shopping mall, there was a big uh, like event for WeChat. Oh, really? I couldn't believe, yeah. and they'd actually partnered with one of the local South African banks mm. to uh, talk about you know how you should download this, and they were giving away money for mm. people that. Uh, yeah, so yes, it is going to become a global phenomenon. Yeah, but getting back to the innovation of China, it's clearly, um, I think, leading the way in, in a lot of things to do with, uh, with ad tech and, and you know, um, mobile phone marketing and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's really doing pretty well. I mean, the US Silicon Valley is absolutely awesome, obviously, but there's some very good stuff coming out of China. There's a CES in Shanghai now. Yeah. I think it's probably in year three or four which gets something like three and a half million visitors. So what's been the implication for you know running a media agency in a market like that 
first of all, the implications for staff, you know, because uh, one of the things that we saw around 2000 is lots of uh, agencies would bring expats, Westerners, into China. But now when you go into most agencies in China, they're all locals and you might have one or two uh, uh, expats. Yeah, I, I would say you probably get about 4 to 5% of the staff being expats, including people from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, who can speak and read and write Chinese. Yeah. Um, and um, that's probably about the balance. But the, the future really in, in China is going to be more local client-based because they're huge mm. and they spend money. So we have, uh, you can have a pitch for a top 10 advertiser that might require uh, 150 people to be hired if you win that business and revenue along the lines of 18, 20, 22 million US dollars, which is mm. huge. Mm. In fact, in some things, it could be half the market of Melbourne. Oh, it's an it's enormous market, yeah. but it's also complex, isn't it? It's because People that think of China as a single market often fall into that trap, don't they? Yeah. And yet you've got the tier one, two, three, and now people talk about tier four and five, tier five as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I worked at Accenture uh, for, for a number of years and really um, started their, their auditing and media benchmarking and uh, pitch management and uh, a little bit of ROI work around China and eventually took on the APAC role. But, um, yeah, people from Europe would say, please send me the CPM of China. <laughs> I say, oh, okay, well, could, could you send me the CPM of Europe? I'm like, oh, we can't do that. I said, we... Yeah, it's, too, it's every market will have... had 400 TV markets. Yeah. And um, there's a wonderful chart that we often use when we have visitors to China that shows that there are about 20 provinces that are actually bigger than European countries. Mm. So there's provinces in China that are bigger than Norway, Sweden... Denmark, uh, uh, Croatia, all of those sort of markets are actually just like a little province mm. of China. Chongqing has 32 million people. Mm. Well, um, I think the uh, it was around 35 cities of more than 5 million people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's uh, Sydney and Melbourne are less Correct. than 5 million. You've got another 34 of those. Yeah. And they're becoming an increasingly more economic, economically viable target for advertisers. So... Um, the, the net household income in some of those provincial markets is pretty, pretty low. But as the standard of living rises, these this tier two and three are going to become very, very important to advertisers mm. in China. And also because the cost of advertising in Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, Shenzhen is now incredibly high. And for established marketers, they've you know they've built their awareness, their product product offering, and uh, they're not getting the ROI for investing in those markets as they are in some of the newer markets. Mm. Going back to uh, staff, you know, what's it like keeping your team up to date with the changes, or are they keeping you up to date with the changes? Look, I've, I've spent a lot of time, obviously, keeping up with what's going on in the market, um, but we have a lot more training than we ever did before. Um, and just to take it back a step, to when I first started in the business, um, uh, we had in those days people that um, were planning and buying TV maybe for 20, 30 years, a whole career. Mm. And it didn't change too much. We, we went from you just had to buy week commencing or fixed night or fixed program, and then in I think about 85 or something, they bought in um, 63 half hours. And, but really, the ratings changed, I guess, from 
diaries to people meetings, but basically in the in the 90s, 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, some of those people could do the same job with very little change. And oh. now, you know, when I started, uh, you know, people used to joke that the TV plan was almost like preset and you yeah. just had to hit the print button because yeah. every campaign was, well, here's TV and here's the support medium. Yeah. It's not so, like that now. No, and and it will become totally media neutral. Uh, we'll move towards audience buying um, by thousands, no matter whether it's on a, on a mobile device or someone's using search on, on Google or or reading The Age or The Sydney Morning Herald or watching Seven Now or iView or SBS On Demand, you're just going to buy the audience mm-hmm. and don't really care too much where they, where they actually, uh, whether it's TV, print, radio. So the, we will move eventually once it becomes all automated, all digital, all programmatic, it will move towards just buying an audience and it will, of course it will become biddable. Yeah. Price one day is different from the price well, real-time bidding will yes. become the standard way of buying media rather than a small group, you know, small yeah. element to the side. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we've seen the rise of programmatic because you can't do real-time bidding without mm. the mm. software platform to be Correct. able to manage it for you. Correct. And digital, you know, the biggest thing that has uh, enabled us is to target the one. Yeah. So we used to always talk about what's the cost per thousand of an audience, but now you can actually say, well, it's almost the cost per one, because you can define targets. So I guess in previous years, you'd, you'd run TV campaigns for for cars, and then traditionally in the car market, there's about 12% of people in the market at any one time. Um, but now we can target virtually those 12%. Mm. Same with the finance for a mortgage, or um, we know that the first thing a, a pregnant lady does is to look at folic acid Yes. And so the soon as they tap on that folic acid, you know, the, the analysts know, oh, there's a pretty good chance that uh, that lady is pregnant. So we'll work or on... Or planning to be in the next few be, months. Yeah, yeah, so she's she's right in our sweet spot. Yeah. And um, so we will target ads, you know, designed for her. So I just want to challenge which that is, idea of... straight for marketers. Yeah, of course. But I want to, t- I want to challenge that idea of of targeting the one, because I think digital was originally positioned that way, but then I get the feeling that they moved it to being mass. You know, it was like targeting one at mass, because they realised that to really unlock the big share of a marketer's budget, they wanted mass. Marketers still think about, they're not interested in targeting one, they want that one and 999,999 just like them. Yeah. And then they go back to a CPM measure because CPM in the digital age is still holding yeah. on there. We, CPM will be, or cost per impression or whatever, yeah. will be our currency, if you like. But most marketers and uh, finance people are under pressure to deliver results today. And what really matters most is actually the performance outcome. And, of course. And, and so what you really want to do is have sales. So. I know of clients that say, you know what, our brand has been around for 50, 60 years, everyone knows it, I'm going to spend more money because my target and my KPI is 15% growth of not brand awareness, but actually sales. And the more we we can link e-commerce into that whole through the line equation, um, we're going to know what brings the result and what doesn't. So naturally, clients will stick to that. They'll always be 
adding to the you know the top of the funnel. If the bottom of the funnel is the e-commerce side, you've got to have things coming in. Mm. So you're still going to have to build the brand and build a, build an aspirational you know quality for people to desire that brand. You're still going to have to do that if you if you don't do that, then you're dead. Mm. And that's a big part of where agencies need to be be working on, in my view. Well, just to go back to what you mentioned before, you were running Accenture for how many years was it? Accenture uh, Media. That, um, four years. Yeah. Four years. So, you know, that whole, I know, uh, you know, there's quite a few services in there, but core of that was media benchmarking or media mm. auditing. Mm. And it seems to me that uh, media auditing is great. In those days, you were talking about television, where it was same day in day out. What do you think the role is for media auditing now in this, you know, the digital age of real time bidding? Well, I think obviously benchmarking will be a challenge. Yeah, because it is it is going to be movable um, within degrees. I mean, it's not going to go twenty percent, fifty percent up, you know. But there'll be there'll be basic parameters. But I guess, I guess an auditor can always compare one advertiser to another advertiser in the same category, but it won't be as defined as, as uh, what it used to be because it's biddable. Mm. Pay for on the day or not pay for on the day. Also, to get enough data, um, you're usually casting target audiences quite broad, aren't you, in, yeah. a, in an auditing yeah. model? Because yeah. you'd go you know, either all yeah. people or grocery buyers. Yeah. Whereas you know, in the digital age, as you said, it's much more about targeting the one and a million other, million Yeah, like the, more, the more transparent and accountable media becomes, and not, there's obviously, you know, lots of discussions about agencies, but it's even in things like viewability of, you know, commercials and three seconds, five seconds, or the whole lot. Um, you know, in China still there's a lot of ad fraud. In, in the world has a lot of ad yeah, fraud. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I, I know China more than I know other markets or Hong Kong, Taiwan, but, um, you know, once all that gets cleaned up, um, things will things will change, but the auditing um, benchmarking has always been a little bit of a uh, sore point for me. So when we started Accenture and started benchmarking, we didn't do it until we had the proper robust system that mm. I could actually say to clients, no, or clients and, and agencies that you know we we've built this and we had um, proper guidelines. And I remember the WFA had a guideline of you need a minimum of uh, four buying points, four agencies, um, and uh, no one client could be more than 5% of the pool. So, so that's 20 clients. So that's 20 clients. Yeah. And um, you obviously needed a breadth of clients. And you know, when I used to talk to some of my competitors in the in that space, in the auditing, I'd say, you know, how, how can you possibly have a, a robust pool? And also you have to do the whole year. So if, if you're doing, I don't know, 2018, you don't really have a pool until you've got all the data, which is mid-2019. So and I think a lot of people, some people keep pitch rates. Yeah. Um, so someone pitches, you know, four agencies put in their pitch rates, which are, you know, sometimes just a bit. Well, let's say they border on fantasy or well, at least fiction in some not cases. They're not deliverable. So at Accenture, we were very, very clear on, it's, it's actual rates and we didn't have the pool in place until we could support it and actually be subject to audit ourselves. Mm. You know, I, I, I made that decision that I would, wouldn't do that. And um, we got to 32, 34 clients in about two years. And really, we, we built that up. But we didn't have it in every market. 
pool. We'd say, no, we don't have that because we don't have the right number. Yeah, I think it had a role with at least giving a gross check on the relationship and the way of working between an advertiser and their agency yeah. and the media providers. Yeah. But I just wonder now whether it's a bit too rearview mirror because as you said, it, you know, it's almost 12 months by the time you've got the data. And really, do you want to know what you should have paid six months ago when Correct. you're about to go into yeah. the market investing another $100 million or yeah. whatever yeah. on data that's now Correct. six months old? And I've always thought that um, there's a place for auditors in, 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 in our industry um, because at the end of the day, we are the same people measuring it and spending it, and I think that's good to get outside there. But what I really don't like is people who think, I think this is not right, or, you know, I like it's all got to be factual-based. And, well, that's, and that's when it's, because we can all learn from things and, you know, we think we're good at it, but we may not be the best or some other people might have an advantage. And so any learning we can get helps the clients and it helps us. Um, and I think that applies to virtually any industry. If you're building a house or, you know, building a product, you look at what your competitors are doing and then you, you use that information or, or use that learnings to do a better job. But I got very cross when I heard people, well, I think, I think it's too expensive. Is it or isn't it? Well, I don't know. You know that sort of language causes a lot of friction. Or even worse, I think it's too expensive because the place I used to work at mm. two years ago, we were paying less. Yeah. You know, which is a, a sample of one. But it, it raises that point of some of the challenges that media agencies are facing. Like one of the easiest things in the world to do is to raise insecurities or concerns amongst an advertiser that they're being overcharged or paying too much, isn't it? Yeah, I, look, I, I think auditors have been around what, in the UK obviously for a long time, but around Asia and Australia, Falcon has been here for must be 20 years or something. Ubiquity. Ubiquity now, mm. yeah. Um, uh, they're in, in China now too. Look, I, I think we've probably reached a bottom level of pricing and um, you know any fat that there was available within the TV pricing or the digital pricing all been removed and it's like anything if you the first year you might be able to save 10% and the next year might be 7 and the next year it's 5 or but eventually I think we're at that stage now where most of the money that can be saved has been saved and you know the TV stations aren't doing well no they're, they're not crying in money they're not going to lower their price 20% just because another agency gets it. Even though uh, there's a lot of pressure on them sometimes to do that. Sure. But they have a fixed cost. Yeah. You know, there's a cost of running a TV yeah. station. Correct. And, and in, in Australia, you can move money around from 7, 9, 10, and there are various you know, subsidy TV stations under that. But in China, you tend to buy the one market and the one TV station. Mm. They're not just going to lower the price just because agency B gets the business. They're going to say, well, I've still got to bring in 100 million worth of revenue. If I sell it to all, to you for 90, well, I'm out of a job. So, so that um, just made me think of another um, what I think is a misnomer uh, about the Chinese market because people are inclined to think, oh, well, television, it's CCTV and it's all government owned, and that seems to flow on to be well, you know, it's all government uh, controlled. But media is a lot more diverse, isn't well, it? Well, digital is not. So government, I mean, there's obviously government influence in content yeah. and things like that, but the ownership of it is, is you know, private, unlisted on the stock market. 
most of them. Um, so, uh, yeah, digital media, when that came in, um, was able to be owned independently by mm. people. What about out of home and uh, some of the other mediums as well? Well, as you know, I've transitioned out of this CEO uh, CEO role that I've had for seven years at, um, on the Comedia Group and remaining a non-executive chairman. Um, but at the same time, I'm working now into programmatic outdoor and building a, uh, a, a new network, um, which we're pretty excited about. Um, that sounds really interesting. How much can you share? Well, I had a bit of a false start, and we've now gone and I've got a different business model, but it's basically um, we have camera measurement, so uh, digital measurement, so we'll track the, the, the number of people, whether they're male, female, uh, young, old, uh, in a mood if they're happy. Yeah. Shopping, I always like their people to be happy. Um, so we will actually be able to put a measure on all of uh, outdoor, not talking big billboards, obviously you can't do that, but street level furniture and shopping malls like that. We will know which are the good sites and which are the bad sites. Okay. And um, we're going to create a network of those. And, so uh, bringing greater accountability and, and I imagine real-time data. Real uh, Accountability, transparency, real-time data. Um, we're going to supply the clients with the data or the agencies with the data. Um, it'll be a platform that you can uh, agencies can buy through. We can work through DSPs. And theoretically, if there's a big outdoor advertiser weekend, allow them to use the platform as well. So that means if your digital poster is uh, delivered into the shopping mall at, say, 10 a.m. in uh, one of the uh, big shopping malls in Shanghai on a Monday morning and there's no one... <laughs> you won't there. pay for it. Yeah. So you'll be, it will actually work that way. Yeah. And if there's more males standing in front of it, then we will serve a male ad. Um, if it's a, it's a female uh, person, more females will serve a a female ad, um, so it, it's and it comes from a library. Uh, it's not exactly in instant, obviously, but because of the censorship requirements and and the need to you know verify that the advertising is correct, so it'll actually be stored in a library first. So it's not like a consumer generated uh, content where you can just upload it. Um, in China, that's that. Um, that's uh, that sounds like a quantum leap for outdoor because I can remember it wasn't game that changing. Big. Yeah, game I remember it, it's a subject that the outdoor industry has really struggled with. Yeah, is uh, proving efficacy. Yeah, it's game changing, and um, the beauty for for marketers and advertisers is you will be able to pick um, which sites you prefer based on traffic counts, whereas now most media is bought. Uh, outdoor media, the street level media, is bought in packages of mm. 20, 30, of which, you know, 10 might be good, 10 might be great, and 10 might be not so good. And, and we'll it'll put a value on all of those. So it will become, uh, it'll become really accountable, transparent, but it's never really had that before. So you'll be able to, for instance, upload different creative for day parts and different audiences and actually have that delivered in, re in quite real, real time, time yeah. yeah, to to the audience. Multiple creative variations, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's very exciting. It is, it is, and um, it's you know I'm at the stage. I've been doing this a long time. I'm at the stage where I'm um, wanting to, to really build something, 
Um, I've had a fantastic career. I couldn't have hoped for anything better. It's not over yet, Doug. It's not over yet, I know. I'm just going to say that um, uh, I, I've um, started as a media guy. I went on to run a creative agency. I went on to run a consulting company. And then I went back to, to run media agencies. And now I'm becoming a semi-sort of media owner or a platform platform owner. And um, it's great. I've done everything, I guess, but be a client. <laughs> and in a long career that, you know, I, I'm just so blessed and fortunate to been able to do that and taking that step to move to China in um, 2000 was was kind of brave but you know it was, it's been a wonderful life experience and a wonderful work experience and I've worked with great people and had great mentors along the way and um, China is still very much a land of opportunity and our industry is so exciting I mean there's many people that are questioning you know where's it going to go but it's just different and we've got to move on from the legacy that we've had uh, and really embrace the new opportunities that will be and then go, go ahead, zoom ahead. So with that level of experience and diversity of experience and in your role as, as non-executive chairman, yeah. what would you see are the sort of really key issues for transformation for agencies? What is it that agencies need to do? Because um, you'd have to say that uh, in the past, they've missed some big opportunities. You know, I know uh, you've often said that you know they missed the whole the growth of digital in the yeah. uh, the late nineties to the early two thousands. Yeah. But what what's the thing that agencies need to do? Well, I think they they still have a huge role to play um, as we've got the big giants, and I believe in the US now, Google, Facebook, Amazon take around seventy percent of the dollars or the right. new, new money. So instead of dealing with multiple, multiple players, in multiple markets we're dealing with three basically global players. So by the way, just getting back to our little outdoor platform, you'll be able to buy advertising in outdoor advertising in China eventually, two to three years down the track, through the Google platform anywhere around the world. Wow. That's something I think we'll be able to do. And a client can do it, an agency can do it, or um, you know, an individual can buy their own media. So I think for, for, for agencies, they've got to play a neutral role, um, a really important because they can be, so in China, if you've got an arrangement with Tencent or with, with Alibaba, the other one gets a little upset about that. And I'm sure Google, Facebook and Amazon, I don't, I don't deal with those really, but I'm sure for them, it's also about share of advertising volume. So we can play the neutral game. Um, we can also do a lot of strategic work that you know we touched a little bit about. It's not all about performance and selling, it's about still building the brands. I think there's tremendous um, opportunities for agencies there. Obviously, it's the interpretation of data. Um, everyone talks big data, I'm not sure how many people are really using big data yet. Um, but I think that's the agency's role really is to um, really understand the target market how they use media today and the format they're doing and finding the most effective cost, uh, cost effective way to deliver that message in an environment that's going to engage. And for me, it's all about, I uh, have a pretty sort of standard thing, topical, shareable, short form content, um, I think is what's going to engage the, you know, the target audience for the future. Just on the uh, the data, there are a group of agencies. We've got uh, Hearts and Sciences in the US, mm -hmm. uh, MDC. And a few other markets, yeah. And, well, 
but they grew up in the yeah, US yeah. And, yeah. and expanded. There's um, MDC Media Partners mm-hmm. and others mm-hmm. that are definitely transforming into being very much a big data-led media um, agency. Yeah. So if they're using data to actually inform selection of a, uh, media choices mm. Mm. and not just in the digital space, in you know the traditional media, yeah. if you could call it traditional. I mean, even television's digital, radio's digital, mm. but you know, in those more broadcast media as well as in, in, um, in the digital one-on-one mm. area mm. to actually drive customer uh, oh, customer engagement and yeah. business performance. Yeah, but you're still going to need to understand that market and you're still going to have to have a strategy, not just in uh, how you communicate or communication strategy, but an investment strategy as well. And, um, you know, agencies can play that role um, moving forward. But, but I think there's got to be different ways of remuneration, obviously, you know, more to a fee-based structure, um, more to a pay for the service that you want. Um, a lot of clients want to save money, which is fair enough, everyone's looking to, to trim costs. Um, but if you want good people, you really do need, to, good talented people, you really do need to pay for it. Well, if you move to a performance-focused model, and not just short-term sales, but yeah. long-term growth, um, that would get you away from a cost-based model, wouldn't it? It would, but uh, I've had lots of conversations with you know media and clients and colleagues about that. Um, I think that's a bit hard to do because media agency and in some extent a creative agency doesn't have full control of what goes what's been broadcast or the message or the pricing and so to have a total performance link thing is a bit tough um you know, but it'll be the ultimate proof well have you, have you done have you, have you done any uh, performance where well most of the time their performance based is uh driving down cost and we won't do that they'll yeah. give us a percentage of savings and we've always refused to do that yeah. because well, the easiest know. thing in the world would be to cut your cost yeah, we didn't and walk away rich on that basis either yeah yeah but well, we know a few that do that i'm sure there is yeah but i think the whole concept of you know well you certainly having skin in the game is now really important if a client grows then we should grow um, I think that, that that demonstrates true partnership which is really important um, but I think getting to a fully performance based deal um, is tough because I would want to say I want to I want to have a say in the creative message that you use I want to understand the pricing that you've got in the marketplace you need I want to understand the time you're going to launch the thing how different your product is all of those areas, agencies don't have too much say in. Yeah, but they make a contribution. They can. Because yeah. at the moment, they're seen as just a service provider. If they're going to move out of just being a service provider, yeah. they need to start at least putting some skin in the game. And we need to absolutely be more than a service provider. And, you know, I would like to think that many of our clients and you know, the ones that I've been involved with over the years have, would say that, you know, we're very close to their business and know lots of things and add a huge contribution to it and a lot of value. Uh, and they're prepared to pay for that. Mm. Look, uh, I just noticed the time, Doug. We've uh, we've got to wind it up. Okay. But uh, all the best with the uh, that outdoor. It sounds like a uh, a fascinating uh, innovation. Mm. Hope it goes well for you.